Welcome to Living Adventurously. Today's episode is sponsored by Soundshack Studios, who offer recording, mixing, and production services for audiobooks, music recordings, or podcasts like this one. Although they are very keen for me to stress that this is being recorded in my shed and not the studio, and therefore all the errors you hear are mine alone. The uh, scratchy chin, the popping peas, and a uh, heavy breathing. So all of that is my fault. Soundshack has done a fantastic job polishing, improving, and mixing my podcasts, and I've also happily recorded three of my audiobooks in the Soundshack studio. Soundshack studio. <laughs> um, so visit www.soundshackstudios.co.uk. Soundshackstudios.co.uk. Um, elocution lessons also provided. Today's guest is Dan Raven Ellison, a guerrilla geographer and creative explorer. Nope, I didn't know what those terms meant either. Um, Dan focuses on challenging himself and others to see the world in new ways by combining creative exploration, geography, and communication to tackle social and environmental challenges. Dan led the campaign to make London the world's first national park city, and he's now working on a new project called Slowways to collaboratively create a network of over 4,000 walking routes that connect all of Great Britain's towns and cities. Now, I'm very well aware in my own life of the need, or not the need, but the the smugness of having a good job description. So I call myself an adventurer and I feel uh, feel very smug when talking to an accountant about that. But you trump me claiming to be a guerrilla geographer. Well, I don't know. I mean, people, people know what an adventurer is. So I think you probably trump me. People like, instantly get what that is. Whereas guerrilla geographer, a lot of people think that I'm just probably hairier than I really am. So <laughs> yes. yeah. Um, I, what is a guerrilla geographer? Guerrilla geography is uh, radical, alternative, creative, surprising, unusual geographies. And being a guerrilla geographer is about using those things to challenge people to think differently about the world and to explore the world differently and to try, I think, uh, to make the world different and better in some way. Um, and a lot of us will be familiar with what I consider to be things within the guerrilla geography toolkit. So Banksy, for example, when you look at his artwork, a lot of his artwork is about just taking things out of place. So not only will he put artwork in a place, which will make you think, oh, you know, what's that artwork doing there? But within the artwork itself, he'll often sort of exchange like a grenade for some flowers or something like that. So he literally takes things out of place, this sort of geographical idea within the artwork in the landscape um, to get people thinking differently about the world or guerrilla gardeners as well. You know, fundamentally what they're doing is they're making places better in a way that inspires and challenges people to think differently about them. So for me, those are like two tools within the toolkit of guerrilla geography. I love anyone who throws seed bombs out of train windows. I just think <laughs> as long as there are people uh, trying to chuck wildflowers onto railway embankments, then the world has hope. Yeah, George, you saying that sort of reminds me. Did you get at school that book uh, by Roald Dahl that had the decapitated child's head being hit by <laughs> like a pylon as they sort of were looking out of a train window? Did you ever get that book? No, this sounds like a dark Roald Dahl. Yeah, well, well, most of Roald Dahl's dark, isn't he? But anyway, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I, I agree. We need more seeds. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. 
Um, I, what I, I like your notion of trying to explore and think about places in creative ways of creative exploration. It's, um, it's very interesting. But why do you always seem to, why do you, you seem to make life difficult for yourself? Why do you always choose projects that are slow burn, disruptive and really hard to get off the ground? I think that I, I have a bit of a, a, a sort of a problem really in my brain and when I sort of see things that aren't being done, I find it quite hard to not feel compelled to fill those spaces. Um, and so I sort of think of a project and think, why is no one doing that? And then whether it takes six months or a year or a few years, I eventually sort of fill that gap really. But it's interesting you were saying about, um, and we can talk about those things, but I think it's interesting what you're saying about being an explorer. And I'd love to know from you what you think the difference is between being an explorer and an adventurer and how those two circles overlap in different ways. Okay. Uh, hey, this is my podcast. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, I've never really liked the word explorer because of, in my mind, it's got connotations of voyaging to far off places that have never been seen before, never been seen and coming home with great knowledge. And um, whereas what I do is essentially what basically like going on holiday really it's just doing fun stuff in wild places which i don't feel merits the dignity the dignity of the name explorer um so the, gravita you, you, the gravitas of it you feel the explorer is a little bit almost like neo-colonial it's a bit kind of harking back to these horrible men who went off to places and did horrible things to other people um there, uh, there is there are certainly elements <laughs> of that but i think i feel more the resistance in terms of those genuine explorers who genuinely went off found new knowledge and brought that home it feels to me like purpose and expeditions with purpose whereas mine are basically mucking about having an exciting time type stuff hence adventure not exploring mm. having said that as my adventuring has gone from trying to do big global expeditions to ever smaller local micro adventures my approach to adventures become far more aligned with yours i think in terms of curiosity and looking differently at familiar places and perhaps then more latterly i have finally started to see myself in some aspects as an explorer in regards to when i go to somewhere i've never been before this the wasteland 500 meters away and i'm nosing around there taking photos for the that to me feels like i am perhaps actually exploring at last in my life for me yeah, no, that sounds good. Yeah, without doubt. I wouldn't disagree with that, any of that at all. I mean, I definitely think that the word explorer is difficult because of some of the history of ways in which people have explored. But for me, we're, like, we're all inevitably explorers. Um, and even if you just spend your whole life doing nothing but watching Lost on repeat on your sofa, like you would be the person who's explored Lost on your sofa in that part of the universe more than anyone else. And you'd be the expert in that. Mm. I think as soon as we're born, we're exploring. And then the, then the question is, how do we use that power of exploration? And so for me, exploration is about asking questions, it's about searching for answers, it's about being curious. And adventure, I think, is about, for me, quite often about the risk-taking nature of your exploration. So how risky are you going to put yourself creatively, emotionally, physically, to find answers either about yourself or about the world around you? Mm. So I think we're probably all explorers and we're all to some extent subconscious adventurers as well 
But what's really exciting is when we push ourselves to the limit to discover really interesting things through either of those two overlapping circles. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I think then what what I like about what you do in terms of the pushing things is you ask a lot of what if questions, which I really like. It's the, I mean, I've asked myself those in terms of trips of Ooh, what if I try and cross an ocean by a boat or something, but but your, yours are <laughs> less uh, less hedonistic and selfish and more generally useful. But but uh, tell me a little bit about thinking about what if what what if we tackle climate change with imagination, courage, and positivity rather than doom and gloom and naysaying. Tell me about what if. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I guess a lot of my projects, I sort of ask what if. So like, what if I was to walk across all the national parks and all the cities in the UK wearing a mind reading device? Um, or what if we could make a film which uh, compressed all of land use in the UK into 100 seconds from above so you could sort of actually get a sense of what Britain really looks like? Or, or what if, and this is probably my biggest what if question, what if you could convince people and transform an entire city, an entire conurbation like London, into a new kind of national park. And quite often, when I ask what ifs, you then follow up with the next question, which is like, well, why not? Like, why isn't this happening already? Or why aren't other people doing this? And are there really any good reasons to not do these things? And and would the consequence actually be potentially really be very good? You know, so for well, example, is, is, is um, it's a ridiculous idea. Is that a sufficient objection? I think that some of the best things that have ever happened have come from ridiculous ideas. I mean, it isn't progress based on ridiculous notions that people have normalised in one way or another. I mean, living on a planet in space where we are contributing to a mass extinction event that could also lead to the demise of humanity because of our own um, inequalities of, of wealth and selfishness is a ridiculous idea. <laughs> Uh, the, the question is can we think of, of better ridiculous ideas that help to overcome those problems mm. i think yeah so yeah. i want to ask you about a few of your what ifs but the, the first one is what if there was a network of walking routes connecting all of great britain's towns and cities and why doesn't that already exist so that's it that's a what if that of yours that i've enjoyed so could you tell me a little bit about what that led to so this is the slow wave project. And the answer to your question with that what if is that is that actually, weirdly, it already does exist, right? We already do have an incredible network of about 200,000 kilometres of public rights of way that connect up all the towns and cities and most of the villages in Great Britain. But while that's the, 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 the case in practice on the ground, I don't think it's the case in our cultural, emotional, spiritual imaginations of the country, you know? Any, any more. Anymore, exactly. So the reason why we originally had those routes connecting neighbouring settlements was for trade or to see family or friends. And maybe you'd go two or three villages over and carry a bit more kit with you to go and trade some pigs elsewhere or whatever it's going to do. Or maybe you're going to go on a really big trek and you're going to go on a pilgrimage from one place to another. Um, but I think that a, lot of the, a lot of the more long distance footpaths we have in Britain now people think of almost entirely for recreational and leisure purposes. And so that means that to, to a large extent, these places go from nowhere to nowhere through nowhere, from a rural place to a rural place through rural places. And I don't really mean in an offensive way that they're really nowhere, you know, but, but the history of our routes that we have, our footpaths is to connect the places where people are to the places where people want to go for functional reasons. So the Slowways Network is just saying, well, what if we reimagined all those footpaths and made sense of them 
in a way that can help people to imagine how they can make long distance journeys across the country um, using existing footpaths, but just thinking about it in a more strategic way. So I think where we are at the moment is it's a bit like, you know, imagine all of our roads in Britain weren't signed properly, weren't really mapped properly, and they weren't put into A roads, B roads, motorways. Then people probably wouldn't think to make some of the journeys that they make at the moment. So with the Slowways Network, um, I've worked with a team of 700 volunteers to map out during lockdown 7,000 routes. Each slowway route connects two neighbouring settlements, and then you can then daisy chain these routes to make big journeys across the country. And from a functional perspective, you know, at the moment, if you want to walk something like, like a national trail, then actually, if, if you're not wanting to wild camp and you don't want to camp, then actually it can be quite technically challenging and expensive to make those journeys, staying in lots of country pubs and things. Whereas with this, because you might walk through a national park or an area of outstanding natural beauty during the day, but you finish in a town or city. If you want to go and eat in Tesco, and then you want to go and sleep on someone's sofa, or you want to go and stay in a cheap travel lodge or something, then those options are available to you. So this is about reimagining how and why we move about the country by foot, but also making it more inclusive and accessible as well by just shifting things around a little bit and, and redesigning what we've got already. I found I find this idea really, really appealing and also something that I've never thought of as well. I really I just find it a really nice thought that I might think, oh, I need to go and do something in this town eight miles away. So I'll just walk one of the slow ways things. Um, I mean, I'm I'm very good at ordnance survey maps and it's quite intuitive for me to follow a route cross country but i'm very well aware that for the majority of people they'd have no idea how to get from this town to one eight miles away without a sense of some sort of a little helping hand signposts or digital signposts and i, I think it's a really really appealing idea and there's look, i read one sentence out that really got me if there is a choice between a high route and a low route the choice should always be lower and easier so that's very much at odds with the national park, sorry, the um, national trails, long distance, yomp over the mountains type experience. You're trying to get people walking in a very different way here. Yeah. And I've got to be say, say that I love the national trails and I love the deep history of a lot of our you know, strategic footpaths that we have within the country and how beautiful they are as well. You're not trying to get rid of them, though. It's just a different, totally different beast, isn't it? It's completely different. Yeah. This is about you know, you're at university in Hull, you want to get home to Huddersfield, you want to save yourself 50 quid, and you want to have like a, a really cool experience, why not walk it over how many days? Or you're going to COP26, and you really want to make sure your carbon budget is really low, you know, take a couple of months and walk it. And here's a way of doing that in a way that's uh, directed and supported and inspirational. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I hope that the slow ways people begin to think of the slow ways, though, not just as footpaths, but to think of ourselves as being part of the slow ways, that, that we, by walking these routes, become part of these routes, become part of the story, and by sharing them, actually can create something quite significant, maybe in the legacy of the way that we think about footpaths and travelling around the country, which we desperately need right now in terms of some of the environmental challenges that we face. And that was another aspect that appealed to me, is when I first saw the notion of walking from Huddersfield to Hull, my first thinking is, well, I haven't got time to do that. I'm far too busy. I need to at least go on the fastest possible route by bike. And and it, the fact that I think that is actually another reason that slow ways appeals to my 
busy 21st century head. Yeah, and there's other ways to think about it as well, though. So, I mean, to some people, the idea of walking from London to Glasgow for a meeting will sound a bit extreme. And quite clearly, that is quite extreme. But, you know, for me, I live in (laughs) London in Hanwell. If I want to go into the centre of town to see friends, I'll quite often spend three or four hours to walk that journey. But then outside of COVID-19, I'd I'd get the tube home again. You know, it's like a one-way, slow way. Um, And one of the things that comes up is if you imagine that the way that the routes look is they're almost triangular between three neighbouring settlements, these sort of amazing geometric triangular shapes connecting up all the towns and cities. And I can imagine people stopping doing almost like circular walks and think about doing triangular walks where you rock up on a train to a town and then you walk out for 10 kilometres to the next town, sleep there for the night, walk for 20 kilometres to the next town or village, sleep there for the night, and then head back to the train station where you started again. So I think that, that, that there's a different kind of geography and pattern to the routes, which means that not only might people just walk five kilometres to the neighbouring town and then get the bus home again, um, which is the easiest way to engage, but you might also start doing some very interesting shapes to explore the country as well. Mm. I would be... Very happy to talk about slow ace about an hour now, and I'm definitely well, I, at some point. Well, exactly. Well, as as the as the plan unfolds, I'm really really interested in it. So it's definitely something that I'm going to be keeping abreast of. Uh, but I want some. There's lots of interesting things I want to talk to you about. So now I would because I I love nature and wild places, and I love the plate. I love the idea of being able to go to somewhere where fifteen thousand species live with eight species of bats the largest population of stag beetles, hundreds of bird species. Where would I find such a magnificent wilderness? It sounds to me an awful lot like Greater London, which oh, is yeah. Yeah, <laughs> one of the most biodiverse regions of the country, rather surprisingly, mm. maybe. Yeah, yeah I'd, um, you're very good at framing things in nice ways like that. Um, so this is the notion of making London a national park city so can i'm sure i'm sure you're perhaps slightly bored of doing this but can you give me your 30 second sales pitch for why london london's a city it shouldn't be a national park (laughs) etc so fundamentally when you look around the world there are national parks that are every single major type of internationally recognized habitat from deserts to rainforests to moorland um and it's my premise really that urban life is not worth less than rural life an urban red fox is worth just as much as a fennet fox or an arctic fox it's just an urban red fox that cities are just as exciting and interesting to explore with our ecological and cultural and landscape uh, diversity and that maybe most importantly that while we often think of cities as places that have all the ideas and the countryside is backwards and always you know behind cities in terms of thinking actually national parks are a brilliant way to think about landscape and the way that everyone and everything is connected within a landscape and how by working together through citizen action through partnerships through collaboration actually we can do transformative things at a landscape scale So all it's doing is it's saying, let's not be prejudiced against urban environments because we live in them, that we as mammals that occupy this city alongside, I say this city, the city that I'm sitting in, you know, that we need a habitat in this city that is outstanding in terms of air quality and in terms of trees and in terms of all the things we would expect for wildlife around the world. Think about us as animals. So the National Park City is about recognising the value of urban as its own type of landscape and habitat not thinking that somehow it's worth less than those other environments, taking inspiration from these national parks around the world and thinking about how we can use that thinking to make our life better in cities, but also the life better for the the other species that we share cities with. 
Mm, yeah, I'm trying- 30 seconds, but that's kind of it. <laughs> no, no, that's very good. Yeah, trying to make us, it seems silly that we care about not chopping down the rainforests, but we're not making efforts to make our cities, which is where most of the human race lives, to make them greener, healthier and wilder. And there's a thing fundamentally about um, power as well. Um, so, you know, people often say, oh, well, you know, um, national parks are all about uh, planning and rules and the idea of a London National Park City, you know, the, our approach to it hasn't got any sort of planning teeth and this kind of thing. But the, the way in which people in cities have an incredible amount of power is through their voting power, through their decision-making power, through the consumption power, through the decisions they make in their lives, in their gardens, on their streets. And actually people in cities, you know, so much power is held in cities that if we use that soft power in cities in creative ways, then actually we can do truly transformative transformative things. And that power doesn't always have to be a paternalistic top-down power that comes from government that tells you what you can and cannot do. Um, actually, a lot of the best power that we see looking after national parks around the world comes from the soft power of things that just individual people do through love and caring for each other and caring for wildlife and not necessarily that being enforced by some military police or some planning authority telling you what you can or cannot do. So what, what can individuals do then to make their towns greener and wilder? I think the first thing is just to sort of take it into your heart and realise that that the urban wildlife, urban life, um, is super valuable. And I think that there's an idea that two two ideas I think that really st- stick with me. Um, you know, one is just this idea of um, just doing absolutely nothing for nature. There was a brilliant campaign in the Netherlands called "Do Nothing for Nature," and, and essentially their their point was that actually if you just leave your garden alone then it might become a bit scruffy and aesthetically unpleasing to the keeping up appearances neighbours. But actually a garden which is super feral and wild is great for wildlife. And actually, you know, you just don't need to, you know, really do very much at all to, to make that happen. Um, yeah, I think that's the main thing, really. I think so. I've sort of lost my no- point now. Do nothing for nature is a gr- that's great. I really like that. We'll go with that one. Well, <laughs> and I think that sort of transcends an awful lot of actions, right? Because actually, if you walk more, if you drive less, if uh, you choose to consume um, products, especially products you eat, that um, that do nothing for nature in terms of um, not harming wildlife, then actually that can go a long way, I think, to not just helping what's happening in the footprint of your town or city, but but beyond as well. Yeah. Okay. I forgot my other point, which is really frustrating, but it was very well, important. It, I'm, I'm sure, very I'm sure important. it's a very good point, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if you remember, feel free to shout it out. But so I must say... I really- I must say thank you to you, Al, because I think that like, I think seven odd years ago, I first contacted you about this National Park sort of city idea. And I think you've always been very good at generously sort of resharing tweets or ideas or supporting things, even if you didn't necessarily, you know, quite know where things might go. And I think that's really great. So thank you. I love it. I love it. I've got here your your National Park city map, which is a big juicy, it's like an ordnance survey map of anywhere, but showing only the green and blue of london it's it's fantastic i love i love the idea have yeah, you seen this map this is this is good podcasting isn't it showing each other maps but it's a, a new map i've been sent of the, the green trees of london map yeah which is really nice map. um yeah, who made that first map this big one meter square map of all of london um he, he spent 600 hours volunteering on that map made that map and now he's making maps for different cities around the world he's making them for glasgow and edinburgh at the moment Breda in the netherlands Really cool. 
for does he still work for Urban Good? He does work for Urban Good. Yeah. Urban Good. We'll give Great them a number. shout out. Um, so I've read. So going on from that happy thing to to a, a blog I wrote read of yours, which is really quite sad. I thought about with a couple of phrases. London is full of empty childhoods. Mm. Um, children are an indicator species of the health of a community. That one breaks my heart. And uh, it seems, and then this paragraph, it seems to me that many parents are making decisions akin to taking out backwards insurance policies. By not letting children play outdoors, they re- reduce the risk of accident, etc. But it also increases the chance of their child being inactive, obese, and depressed. They literally shrink their child's childhood by depriving them. And then that links into George Monbiot's shifting baseline syndrome, which learning that phrase has opened my eyes to so many things, shifting baseline syndrome. But could you tell me a little bit about London being full of empty childhoods and how that can link into the National Park City? Well, I think that everyone listening to this will have a, be very aware of the issues of children not playing outdoors nearly as much as they used to in their past and some of the consequences to that. But I think that what I was trying to say in that article, I think is maybe a useful framing is to begin to think of childhoods not as a period of time, but to think of it as a place, a bit more like a, a neighbourhood. And then you begin to think, what do you want inside your child's childhood, right? And they need to have access to rope swings, right? They need to have access to places where they can build dens. They need to have access to places where they can play street cricket. They need to have access to go and hang out secretly, covertly with friends. They need to have space to connect with nature, to you know, swim in canals, whatever it might be, right? You need you need to have those things within uh, childhood. It needs to be safe enough, but not totally safe as well. I think that if 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 your child's childhood doesn't include those things, you need to ask questions about how can you do things to increase their childhood to include those things, or on a more, in a more political way, what needs to happen to make those things available to your child in that childhood. And you know, I think the big thing for me around the London National Park City and the connection to this is about hopes and aspirations and these sort of big what if questions you know so i was saying before about what if why not which is this sort of mantra we have uh, in the london national park city um you know and, and i think that the idea of the national park city this city which is greener healthier wilder this story that we can all be a part of this landscape that we can all improve sets that vision there's these what if questions you know so what if every child could explore play and learning outdoors? What if every school in London um, had great outdoor learning in nature? What if there were otters and more otters in our rivers? What if um, the air was clean enough to breathe? All these what ifs. And then there's the context of London being a national park city, which creates a, a political frustration, I think, and a motivation to say, well, why not? If we're a national park city, then why isn't there proper curriculum in schools for learning about nature? And why is it we're prioritizing cars parking on streets rather than spaces for children to play? And why is the air toxic? And why is it that only one of all of river, London's rivers is kind of averagely okay and the rest are basically dying? Like, how can those things be the case? And so whether it's thinking about uh, childhoods for children, whether it's thinking about um, uh, corridors for hedgehogs to make their way through the city, we need to have enough people, first of all, desiring these things, to demand these things in the city, and then to create a frustration that enough people become angry and saying, well, where is this thing? Why isn't this happening now? I think the National Park City helps to create that tension, both of opening up imaginations, but also helping to highlight some of the injustices, because it should be that every child has a great childhood, right? And if they don't, then, then why not? Mm. There's been a lot of conversations in the outdoor community recently about um, access to the outdoors and 
diversity of participation in outdoor activities. So from your perspective as a well, a, jo- a teacher in a school for a number of years and also working in urban environments, what is it that's stopping a more diverse audience enjoying wild places? I think that's a really, really complicated question. And we can have a <laughs> conference for a number of months and not get to a satisfactory answer. Um, You've got three minutes. Because <laughs> the, 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 the geographies of why people of different groups are or are not going outside is, is as complex as the diversities and numbers of people and the places they're in. So just to, to relate to my own experience, um, um, where I live in Ealing, I try to organise a play street um, 100 houses on the street every year that had a street party, right? About half the houses had primary school aged children in them. And I tried to organize a play street, this is about 10 years ago now, wrote to all the residents, and different people were basically saying, um, um, no, you can't do it, we're going to call the police, it's illegal, which is wrong. Some saying there are no children on this street, which was completely wrong. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about COVID and the crisis we're now in, and it's, it's all the evidence of children being around the place by chalk on streets and rainbows in windows reminding us that we're surrounded by uh, children everywhere um but um but this street that i lived on which was 100 meters long if you were at one end of the street and you had children then it was probably more dangerous to send your children out because you're on the end of a rat run but i lived on a dead end street so if you're on the other end of the street it was super safe but people on the street were all talking either from a point of ignorance of thinking there are no children on the street because they came home from work at seven o'clock at night and never saw any children or they were talking as if they had the same lived experience, although they only lived um, 50 metres apart, but had very different experience with their children. So I think that we lack quite often a nuance in the debate about why it is that it's hard for some people to connect with nature or get outdoors. And that is quite often linked to issues of um, where people live and the nature of their homes, um, rather than necessarily just about, say, ethnicity or class. But it's true to say that all these things overlap and many environments are just straight up classist, racist, hostile. Um, When we launched the London National Park City last year, we listed out the key audiences that we wanted to reach with the the launching festival um, who were not using parks enough. And essentially it was um, women, children, disabled people, ethnic minorities. So basically other than white men, right? Every other group is underserved in parks in London. So there's an awful lot of work to be done, is what I'm saying, but it's really complicated. But the solutions come from lots of different places. There's not like one problem or one solution. Mm. So, what would be a low hanging fruit starting point of action to get more people out into nature? I think that. Um, that we, us, taking someone to show them um, nature and show them how to enjoy nature. And when I say we, us, I mean those who are already out in nature, taking someone who doesn't normally go is one simple thing that we can do. Give someone an inspiring, supportive experience, which is not painful, which isn't cold, you know, which is comfortable, um, um, which isn't too long necessarily. But having someone take you there and show you that, but not in like a necessarily an extreme way. Like both of us are extremists, right? Both of us in our thinking and our adventures are, are extremists. But actually that would alienate an awful lot of people. I think there's there's too much imagery around the outdoors, which is alienating because of the people who you're looking at don't like you or they're doing things that you can't relate to doing. Um, 
So I think that it's taking people, but I think actually my follow-up point to that would be it's about, I think, putting things into nature that are cultural that people want to do. So most people will quite like to watch nature on TV, but they don't really care about it. Otherwise, they look after it better or they join more membership organizations and take more action, right? So people like, like looking at badges, but they're not that bothered if they get sort of killed en masse. <laughs> Having said that, I think that a lot of nature people wouldn't necessarily like, but it's probably then true. You put music into some woods and you let people dance around like people have done for thousands of years and they're going to enjoy themselves. And that's a different way to enjoy nature. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to like swimming in canals to enjoy nature. I'm not sure that at that point I necessarily thought that I really loved the grass snakes or the coots, right? But I enjoyed going for a swim in the canal. I think there's probably lots of adventurers who enjoy being out. They may or may not think that nature is like consciously be thinking, oh, I'm really enjoying nature today. This nature is fantastic. So I think there's probably a really important thing about taking people to have experiences that are positive, but doing things in those places that people can relate to that they will enjoy, rather than thinking that everyone should be into knowing the name of every bird. And if they don't mm. know them, you know, bird shaming them because they don't know the name of a robin or something. Yeah, I read a piece just this week, which is barely on the fringes of my brain, so I'll get it totally wrong. But the essence of it was... I'm going to totally butcher this, but essentially it was saying Asian families like to go to the countryside in order to have a big family picnic because that's just what they really enjoy doing, but often get sort of pressured that you shouldn't be just sitting around here having a picnic. You should be yomping up that mountain um, and that that trying to make people comfortable with whatever they want to do in nature, as long as they're not trashing it, should be embraced and encouraged. Yeah. And I just completely agree with that. I mean, like I say, I mean, two of the things I really love is summer music festivals. And I really love going out and exploring woods. And if in a sensitive way, I can combine those two things together, um, like, like my deep rooted history, you know, of being a homo sapien on this planet would have been dancing around a fire in some woodland, then I'm a very, very happy person. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's so good. That's, that's, that's your happy place. Um, I want to ask you about everyone's happy place, isn't it? Dancing around a fire in some woods, like like who's not happy in that situation? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'm sign me up. <laughs> yes, um, and I, I like talking to people about how they making stuff happen. So you had this big dream of make a national park city, but uh, it's a big dream. But the, there's just so many barriers that get in the way of that. So um, what were some of the first small steps you did to actually go from just an idea that you had in the bath to starting to build something of substance and momentum? I think that the, the London National Park City um, is probably all about epiphany. You know, it's so interesting you say about baths and like almost like Eureka moments. So to start with, it was about... M- having the thought of the possibility and then asking people what do you think of this idea now what if we made london a a national park city and what would generally happen is whether it was instant or a minute or an hour or a week or a year people would on the whole come back and go oh yeah that's a great idea because of all these reasons um and so over like a couple of years it was about constantly asking this question what if we made london a national park city and it started off just by asking people one-on-one then booking some community halls and pubs or whatever to have conversations with like 30 people and then I put my hand in my pocket and gambled and hoped for the best and booked South Bank uh, and got 600 people along all going well what if we made London a national park city and what that then did was 
a couple of things. Not only did it help to um, give other people epiphanies, but it started to create a really strong story, actually, about why it is that this idea could be so strong and so important, not just for London, but for other cities around uh, the world as well. And so the, the power of the story and giving other people epi- epiphanies is still very much so like a key part of the process. Like a lot of people listening to this either won't know about London being a national park city or won't really quite get it yet. But hopefully at some point, the penny will drop. And in that, not just understand how a city can be a national park, but begin to have other epiphanies about how they might be able to contribute to a vision like that if they live in an urban environment. One thing I I like about the London National Park City is that I think it's quite an exciting idea whether you live... even if you don't live anywhere near London, if you live, how can we make our village a, like a micro national park? It's just taking those, the spirit of things to wherever you live. I really like it. And the, the, the London National Park website is so ridiculously positive. That's my overriding impression of it. There's so many good things happening, so many good things to do. It's, was it a conscious effort to go full on positive? There's so much to be positive about. Definitely. And there's, there's lots of naysayers. There's lots of people who are being negative. Um, and we, we, you know, we didn't want to get entangled with the, the, the many debates out there that, that take you into quite a negative spiral. It's about mm-hmm. showing people good things, showing th- people that things are possible. You know, and, 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 and a key, key epiphany for me, I think, and revelation really is, is the point that within our cities, whether it's London or Manchester or Swansea or York or wherever it might be, we actually have all the expertise, all the talent, all the energy, all the creativity to make our cities ridiculously more green, healthy and wild, whether they're a, a national park city or not. The issue is that those ideas are not spreading quickly enough or equitably enough across our cities. So we're not seeing the transformation as quickly as we need. So whether it's called a national park city or whether it's called something else, I think by celebrating what works and giving strength to the elbow of people who are doing good things, and then showing people who are new that they can do these things too, I think it's a great way to to both support that action, but also to catalyze more of it as well. Hmm. But I just say as well, though, that it's interesting what you say about small places and national parks, because when I walked across all the national parks in the UK, one of the things that I noticed that I thought was just quite interesting was the way that in quite a few of them, there are sort of small villages or towns which are almost incidentally within a national park, but they in no way seem to be responding to the fact that that, that the urban fabric is part of that national park as well. So I think in places like Petersfield, you know, uh, which is in uh, the South Downs National Park, places like that, you know, they're, they're within this national park context. They could respond to it so much more. Aviemore, you know, could respond so much more to the fact. So rather than feeling like a service station in the middle of a national park, it's like an island of urbanity within this otherwise, you know, rural place or remote place could actually become far more part of that landscape um, in its its design, its outlook, its culture, rather than just being like a staging post, you know? Mm, yeah. And I often feel in those staging post places that l- large number of the people who live there have no connection to the hills on their back doorstep. Um, yeah, I think that's often the case. Yeah. yeah. And that, that that's the opportunity, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so you are incredibly good at, you seem to be so prolific and so thorough. How do you get so much stuff done? Oh, I, I don't know what you mean by get stuff done, really. I mean, you know, well, the you national... Got pro- you've got projects galore and you like, make this crowdfund this brilliant newspaper which was fantastic and then 
just fun. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, don't have, I, don't, I don't have a prolific sort of standoff with you because I think that, you know, you um, I think are far more prolific than me in terms of the diversity and quantity of what you put out. But um, <laughs> I think that I do some fairly meaty things that, that just mm. are rolling. Um, so National Park City, you know, it was a seven-year project. Slow Ways, which started earlier this year, is going to be like probably, you know, it's just going to be a project that lasts forever, you know, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, it's just about having ideas. But I think that when I started off doing various provocative projects, I was always quite urgent to do them straight away. But I think I've come to realise that it often takes two, three, four years to even get to the starting point, really. Yeah, and um, okay, well, te- maybe then could you tell me about how you summoned up the mojo to do that? Because I loved starting projects but if i can't finish them by next monday then i uh, give up in frustration i think it comes back to that sense that when we, when we started the conversation i said that there's like gaps that need filling and i and maybe a sense of frustration that things just aren't being done and then if things aren't being done then it's not like you can just go and do that thing next tuesday because actually you're you're doing something that's yet to be done if that makes sense so so convincing enough people and the mayor of London and the international community that the city can be a national park city took seven years. I mean, the, <laughs> and, and, once, and once you, once you're like one or two years into it, like you can't then stop very easily and a bit like the slow ways as well. Um, you know, once, once you're into it, you just got to keep going really. <laughs> so to some extent it's just about jumping into the void and hoping for the best with some of these things. Okay. I, I, you know, I did this project, the UK and hundreds, a lot, a lot of my ideas, people have no idea what I'm talking about when I first said to them, you know, mm. so with this film, the UK in hundred seconds, it's a 100 second film, film from above. Every second of the film is, is 1% of what the country looks like from above. And it was inspired by me really thinking about how, um, so much of the political narrative around Brexit and around climate change and around nature is based on people having these very distorted imaginations of what land is used for in the country and, and what we use land for. You know, so the tabloid media, right-wing tabloid media, often saying that Britain's full. You know, there's no space for migrants, no space for refugees, no space for more nature, no space for affordable housing, maybe. Uh, Trump in America saying America's full. And he started off by saying the system's full, but then he starts to, uh, but he finished off by kind of saying there's no more space for any more people. Anyone who's been to North America before knows that that's just an absolutely ridiculous assertion. So I ended up with Friends of the Earth um, and found that a, a um, one in three people in the UK think that over half the country is built on. It's more like somewhere between like five and seven percent, including the gardens. The footprint of buildings is like two percent. Um, over half the country is used for animal-related agriculture, essentially. So, in the situation at the moment where we're in a climate emergency, a nature emergency, there's a shortage of housing. Apparently, there's no space for refugees, and yet the majority of the country is used for milk and cheese. You know, um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have milk and cheese necessarily, but I think that's a bit disproportionate. You, you can face. <laughs> so what this film does is it just gives you a visualization of how we're using um, the land. But that is an idea that I had three years earlier and had lots of sort of annoying conversations with lots of people trying to help them understand this idea and just keep on pushing, keep on pushing, keep on pushing to finally find the right support or the right money to enable that thing to help happen well enough like I'm not interested in things being perfect because otherwise it won't happen, but something being good enough, you know, but a lot of pestering people. Okay. Yeah, pestering people. So, uh, so I've, I've gone absurd in my life with the world of micro adventure, but you trump me with what you call your nano expedition. 
which was this hundred hundred seconds. And if people haven't seen the film, I'd urge them to watch it. It's a top-down view of you walking through the landscapes of Britain with time accorded to the percentage of land that's covered. And it's a, a brilliant visual way of showing it. 9% peat bogs, for example, is way more peat bogs than I'd imagined. 10% woods, and as you say, more than half the country uh, to do with arable cows, sheep. So how does all that compare to other countries in Europe? Well, you are, know, are we wild or not wild? Yeah, well, we're one of the most nature depleted countries on the planet. Um, and we have roughly half the amount of woodland in Britain that there is um, in much of Europe. But then compared to, you know, parts of the Netherlands, parts of the United States, you know, we're doing really well. Um, I mean, one of my key reflections for a policy, which I think that some nature charities are are looking at as well, is that, you know, when you look at when you fly over and you look at like North America, a really big thing that you notice when you look through sort of the Midwest and you're looking at all these big fields of wheat and corn, is just these, these squares of crops for as far as you can see um, and no hedgerows. And we're just so fortunate in this country to have hedgerows. But although they are significant in our imagination for the character of the British landscape, they're like 0. 0.0 something percent, you know. And I just think as a really great nature recovery policy, if we were to double the size of all all reasonable hedgerows, right? All hedgerows, if we were to double the size of all the hedgerows in width and to turn um, thousands of them into hollowways, which would allow you to then have far more footpaths traveling around the country, but could also be used by wildlife to get around. I think that'd be a fantastic thing. And it would only be a fragment of a percent to achieve that. And I doubt it would have very much impact on uh, farmers' pockets at all. Can you imagine if we were to double the size of all the hedgerows and had hollowways going through them for for camping and hiking and things? I think it'd be fantastic. Oh, man. That would be fantastic. So, um, how how then can we make more space for nature? Because that's a lovely idea. How do we actually make any of this happen? Well, I think one of the most significant things we can do is think about our diets in reality. And I don't think that's necessarily about all people turning vegan or having no meat or dairy. But it's it's also the case that if we were to have um, higher quality and less meat and dairy, then we could use far more of the country for uh, nature-based recovery projects and create more space for wildlife. But in terms of urban places, you know, there's this you know great campaign, this idea of... Um, leaving half the world for, you know, purely for wildlife or for nature wherever possible. And that's partially about these big landscape nature reserves and national parks covering the oceans and parts of uh, rainforests and things. But it could also just be our gardens and our balconies and our streets as well. So I think that those are two really clear things that people can can do, you know, both in terms of then being able to experience nature where you are. Oh, do you know what? I remember now this idea. I said they had two, two points. <laughs> it's been whirring in the back. I could hear your brain whirring for the last 20 oh, minutes. Saying this sort of reminds me. So <laughs> I always feel like a bit of a fanatic when I say this because of something in my cultural English roots. And maybe you'll feel it too when I say it. Or maybe I'm just paranoid, you know. But what I like about rewilding and the, and conversations of, of of restoration of nature maybe slightly less political to talk about restoration um or you know regeneration or whatever is that it's about being on a front foot it's not about just trying to protect um a, a diminishing amount of you know nature that, that we're trying to protect actually it's about being on a front foot and creating more 
And, you know, I think that there's one thing about protecting life, but I think there's something extraordinarily exciting and beautiful about the fact we all have the power to create life, that we can create life. And when I say that, like I, the, there's something in my sort of Englishman sort of reserve that makes me feel like I'm being a bit sort of extreme when I say that. Um, but the fact that you can leave a flower pot or part of your garden and do nothing for nature even, you don't even have to do anything, and it can actually create life that can then create more life, I think is an extremely exciting, not even an idea, just fact. And so I think that sometimes when we talk about gardening, for example, it just feels a bit boring, maybe a bit flat for a lot of people. But the idea that you're creating life in your garden at a moment of, an, of like mass extinction around the world, I think is a very beautiful thing. And I think that we should all start talking far more about our power to create life. Hmm. I like that you ma- you managed to put. A- I like your, I like your, mm, see, I think you think I was sounding a bit fanatic when I was saying that. No, 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 no not at all. <laughs> I like. Lo- I really like that you managed to put that you f- feel you managed to take derive positivity and optimism and hope for the outdoors. Do you feel optimistic and hopeful generally? Yeah, I mean, I'm a pragmatic optimist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I hope the outdoors, I mean, the outdoors isn't going to go anywhere, you know, and yeah, do you know what? I mean, people talk about saving nature and the, the problem with a bland comment like that is, is not only some deep questions about what is nature and, and, and do we like all of nature or is there some nature we really don't like and all those complexities, but just the very fact that when politicians talk about everything that's been done, to a large extent, it's too little, too late. There are just so many species that we'll never see again. And from a and while nature conservationists are worried about species, what then often becomes a bit more of it sounds like a, a bit more of an extreme narrative, but is true is it's the individuals that we have lost. You know, when you think about the individual animals and the individual lives that have been lost. So when you watch these wildlife programs and you hear that puffin populations are crashing, that's one thing. But then. Um, but then you, you hear these stories about these puffins that are waiting for their their partner puffin to come back from a journey somewhere, mm. and they don't come back because of some you know awful event, you know, um, and and actually those puffins, those individual puffins, they might not, not be quite as intelligent as human beings, but they'll be suffering a trauma. They'll be suffering an emotional trauma. So when I think about the harm that we're doing to the world historically and how something like half of all the wildlife on the planet, you know, species, whatever it is like, we've lost like incredible numbers of species and the biomass of life on the planet now is like, you know, a tiny fragment is wildlife and the rest is like cattle and then sort of a few people. Cows and chickens. It's just just astonishingly awful, really. Mm. Um, but people don't think enough, I don't think necessarily about following right through. So yes, we lost a species and that's what the scientists are really worried about. And then the human rights people are more worried about the health and well-being of the individual and the survival of the individual. But we don't talk enough about the emotional trauma to individual animals of the experiences we put them through. And not just in terms of like right now, but historically for the last few hundred years. So uh, I'm optimistic, but at the same time, it's really awful, isn't it? I mean, it's really awful. <laughs> yes, it really is. Yeah. It, it, Colossally awful. It's almost like it's so awful that our brains can't quite comprehend it. Really, well, they can't. Mm. But then, but the problem comes with because that's when you then start to end up with awkward conversations with your 
Auntie Mildew at Christmas dinner and therefore just brushed the whole thing under the table and another 10 years, another 10 years has gone by and we're too late. Yeah, and the, the point is it, it already is too late for just so many people and so many species and so many individual animals. Mm. Um, and I think that we could all, all of us could do a bit more soul searching about how will future generations think about some of the awful things that humans have done to other people in places 100 or 200 years ago. Now reflect on that positioning on how people might think one or 200 years from now about our role in our relationship mm. with nature and each other and whether or not our uh, integrity will sort of stand the test of time, our collective integrity will stand the test of time. Okay, so give me then, please, a few action points that listeners could take to try and turn this around. So some positive steps that will help the situation and also make our individual lived existences right now better, more pleasurable, more worthwhile. What, what, what can we do to, what can we do? Yeah. So I think that we can just think about how we have a better relationship with the rest of nature. And wherever possible, creating more of it um, and not harming it. And to some extent, that's about the, our physical footprint by in terms of what we have in our gardens and our balconies, like I was talking about before. Stretching that out, thinking about influencing neighbours and the connectivity between gardens for butterflies and for hedgehogs. Um, thinking about how we move around, because even the choice to not drive so much um, will have an impact on air quality, which doesn't just influence the health and well-being of people and children and their mental and physical development and life chances, but also the other species that we share our towns and cities with as well. And then, you know, we know these things. It's then thinking about what we're consuming and whether or not the things we're consuming either directly involves the harming of other animals on the planet or the somehow the diminishing of their habitats. And, you know, we're all hypocrites and we're all guilty and it's completely impossible to navigate this world without um, harming um, each other and nature in various different ways. But we can reduce it as much as, as is possible. I think part of the problem with the psychology of certainly in British culture is so often the conversations race to this sort of place of black and white where you have to sort of go to extremes and somehow, somehow in this country... Um, people who are almost always doing the bad things can have a moral authority, in, culturally speaking, over the people who are trying to do the right thing mm. as much of the time as possible, but obviously failing because they're in a system which means that they're always sell, set up to fail. So, you know, Caroline Lucas gets into trouble for flying to North America to go and see her son, for example. So, of course, that means complete slander for the Green, you know, the green Party and for environmental activism and does all that harm. But the people who are projecting all that negativity are people who maybe fly to Barbados every six weeks and eat as much meat as they want and, you know, have, um, you know, a couple of SUVs driving around the place. Yeah. And somehow we need to rebalance the conversation so that anything that's being seen, anything that is doing more good stuff more of the time is congratulated. This is for me the spirit of the National Park City stuff in many ways as well. Um, and that that's okay to not... Be perfect all the time. I like um, that. The sense of being, being, being consistently, but being consistently flawed, um, 
you know, being consistent in your flawedness, morally, mm. ethnically and morally, I think is not better than being inconsistent in your efforts to be better. Yeah, doing more good stuff more of the time is a good uh, pragmatic approach, I think. So um, I have, sorry, Dan, I'm going. I I uh, I've, I'm conscious of your time here, so I have a a deck of cards with some mystery questions. Are you up for a couple of minutes of my mystery questions? To I'm finish? definitely up for mystery questions and to lighten the tone after that seriousness. Hopefully, you can pass if these are quite serious. Actually, <laughs> uh, you can pass if you don't want any. Okay, tell okay. me stop. Stop. What small thing do you do regularly which greatly improves your enjoyment of life? Uh, watch Netflix. Do you? Yeah. What's what's a good thing, good cheerful thing to watch on Netflix? Uh, do you know what? It's really awful. And I'm just going to say outright that it's really awful, but I really enjoyed Into the Night recently, which is this French miniseries about some people who are trying to escape the sun otherwise they will die and so they're flying continuously west around the world doing like awful things to stay alive and it's just awful it makes no sense um so yeah but netflix is great don't oh, you like netflix? Yeah. yeah 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 amazing i mean i really like walking as well right and i really like you know uh spending time in in trees and i love sort of snakes i love snakes and sort of seeing snakes they really excite me and seeing foxes so i like other things as well but netflix is pretty cool okay <laughs> right uh tell one stop well tell me about the last time you climbed a tree or swam in a river or watched the sun set from a hilltop Um, the last time I climbed a tree was, I'm trying to remember, maybe I swam, swam in a river more recently. The last time I climbed in a tree was to play hide and seek. I love playing hide and seek, right? And the place to hide when you play hide and seek is to go up a tree. And you go up a tree because, because one, people th don't think to look up. It's a bit like in Shawshank Redemption where people don't look down at your shoes. On the whole, people don't think to look up. But as well as that, if you pick a really good tree, then you can get high enough up that as people come closer to you, you can very silently move yourself around the tree so that they never spot you. Um, so, yeah, that would be the last time I went up a tree for good game of hide and seek. Okay. Good uh, yes. Right. Okay, we'll do one more. How would your life be different if you were a millionaire? So I wouldn't allow myself to be a millionaire, I don't think. Have you seen that? I mean, people should Google this. Have you seen like the um, the infographic of Jeff Bezos and the amount of money that he earns and you just scroll, you scroll for like scroll, half scroll, the life scroll. of the I mean, it's just un it's unacceptable um, amount of wealth, probably. Um, so um, I'd, I'd want to lock down some basic security for myself um, in terms of knowing that I could retire without having to worry about rent That'd be a very nice thing. Um, but outside of that, I'd like to think that if I came into a million pounds now, that I'd use that to help catalyze some of the key projects I'm working on. You know, the, the London National Park City could definitely do with an injection of love to help um, resource and time for people to create more opportunities for others. That's what it's fundamentally about, you know. And equally with the slow ways, give it an injection to help it sort of, again, create more opportunities for others. Um, and what, re what recklessly decadent thing would you buy for yourself? Come on. 
Right now, I'd like a really nice new bike, actually. I haven't got... That's what I was going to say. I was going to say that. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need a new bike. Well, uh, you always need one more bike than you've got. I think that's the cyclist's curse. Yeah. What sort of bike are you after? I just need, like, a nice hybrid bike for just getting me around town, really. Um, nothing, nothing, nothing too complicated, but I need something new that works well. Um, so, yeah, I think a, probably a bike. Yeah. Okay, well, London National Park City seeks bike sponsor. Apply via, <laughs> apply via email. Um, Dan, thank you so much for all the projects you do, the the real thoughts you put into everything. You really make me think of a lot of the stuff that you write and do. So, um, And thank you for giving me a good chunk of your time this afternoon. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for all your support over the years for the various different things. And I look forward to walking a slow way with you uh, before the end of the year, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. I would really like to do that. Yeah. Thanks very much, Dan. Cheers, Al. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.